0: Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. How to capture the soul of a subject, live your life dedicated to your own art, the process of discovery, and even plan your syncretic memorial so that all your ducks are in a row. This seems to me efficient, humble, Gentle and visionary, all at the same time, and could describe the work and life of artist Fumiko Kimura, co founder of Puget Sound Sumi Artists. Her life story was written as a collaboration with David Berger, and he's our guest today to discuss Fumiko's life, his study with her, and her art. The book is Persimmon and Frog My Life and Art Akibe Nisei's Story of Self Discovery. David's an author, an artist, and former visual arts critic at the Seattle Times. David, welcome. Thank you so much. Fumiko, did I get that right? You got it right. Okay, good. How did you meet her? Well, I met her through the Puget Sound Sumi Artists,
1: where I'm a member. And one day I went to one of the open house sessions that she offered just to paint with her. And it happened that uh, she and I were just the only ones there. This wasn't the first time I'd met her, but the first time that I'd had kind of a tete-a-tete conversation with her. And so we were both painting and talking and talking and painting, and she talked a little bit about her life, and uh, I was pretty intrigued. I already had been intrigued by her life, uh, just because being around the Puget Sound Sumi Artists, PSSA, I had heard a few things, read a few things, and known a little bit about her life. But at this particular session, for some reason, we turned toward very serious topics. And her son had committed suicide at a young age. And I was having some suicide issues within my own family. And uh, so we kind of had a a, kind of a conversation there. Yeah, I think that was our first kind of uh, intimate conversation. Do you remember the year of that? Uh, I don't know exactly. Maybe 14 years ago, something yeah. like
0: that. Suicide just rips your guts out, doesn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, suicide. The thing that uh, people don't think about or realize with suicide is, that of course, it's one person is exiting the world. But it affects lots of people. And I've seen more than one family kind of uh, uprooted, if not destroyed, through the suicide of
0: another family member. Yeah, it's a- You've summed up some of her critical life events in haiku at the end of the book. So, you know, if we're talking about a subject and you happen to have a haiku about it, I would love it if you would just say it just so happens I have a poem about that to read. So, because I think it it really enhances. And you know, haiku, I mean, essentially her work is like haiku in, in graphic form in many ways. Um,
1: I think that's true. She was always trying to simplify her experience or capture her experience in her artworks. Of course, she has a Japanese sensibility. Did you want to get into that now, how she
0: developed that? Well, we could. Yeah. I think giving listeners a sense of her life, uh, born in Idaho... Of all places. Went back to Japan just before World War II broke out. Was kind of stuck there. Knew hunger and poverty in in World War II Japan. And uh, another life event that really important that comes up a few times in the book is burned pretty badly in a fire as a young girl. Well, you've hit most of
1: the highlights. Uh, she is just a happy person now. Uh, you, you, but when you read her early life experience. It's really surprising Or when I perused the book in preparation for this interview and thought again about how many hard knocks setbacks, strange historical circumstances that she endured. It's really kind of remarkable. She was born as you say in Idaho to truck farmers. Not an easy life at all and a hard life and it was her mother's second marriage, her mother also had some hard knocks in her life, which must have communicated to Fumiko. And then at the age of 10, they had moved to California to continue to farm. And she was, uh, as the oldest daughter, uh, having to participate, make the meals and such. Uh, and As well as go to school, of course. And uh, she was making the, the evening rice and set the kerosene stove on fire or some kind of accident in her dress. Caught fire, very flammable, and she was severely burned over much of her body. Ended up spending four months in the hospital and having skin grafts. Her flesh was pretty badly distorted, I guess you would say. Burned and then healed and uh, looked like a topographical map. Not a smooth plain in Kansas, but more like the Cascade Mountains with mountains and hills. Although you couldn't see it because of where it was located on her torso, it was mostly hidden by clothes. But her father was not a kind and gentle man, and he he fits the stereotypes you kind of think of as or sort of one aspect of Japanese culture, and uh, he uh, could not adjust to his daughter with this look, and he. Thought she was a freak, disfigured, and made no bones about calling her those things and essentially shunning her. She was only 10 years old. And as a result, basically at the age of 10, she basically stopped communicating with her father, although they lived under the same roof.
0: Uh, so that was a hard circumstance. She uses the word perfunctory in terms of her communication with her dad after that age.
1: Yeah, just a word or two is all of their communication. So mentally, in her own mind, psychically, she put up a wall that basically stayed with her for her entire life. And it is quite amazing, as these things do in our lives, but when she is at the age of 90, as she can recall those moments 80 years previously, the pain of that fire the heat of that fire staying and recovering of course for four months in hospital so she was a farmer's girl i mean she grew up in a rural farming culture and then at, shortly after the accident the family went on a long planned trip to japan as you mentioned and uh, Visited with the grandparents. The stay was extended because the mother had tuberculosis and they couldn't come back to the States right away. And so their visa was extended and shortly after that then uh, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and war was declared. And so suddenly she was unable or the family was unable to return to the United States. So she uh, was enrolled in school. I mean they had to kind of make their way there in Japan. And uh, she looked 100% Japanese. Her, both her parents were Japanese. And yet, the uh, in the rural classroom there, they called her a blue-eyed American and shunned her, dissed her. And of course, so it was very hard. I'm, I mean, the confusion of identity at this time must have been very harsh. Because it, what are you? Are you American? Are you Japanese? They'd already been in Japan then for for a year and a half. But she'd grown up in a Japanese culture within America. She'd gone to Japanese school as well as a Western school. But of course, she wasn't accepted by the kids in Japan. So that was hard. And then eventually, as the war went on, she became somewhat accepted there and began to adjust to Japanese culture. And those are very formative years. She was there uh, for over seven years, ages 10 to 17. Those are just awfully important formative years for your, uh, well, for your intellectual development, for your moral development, but especially for your social development. So, uh, she was there until the war ended, but of course you couldn't like, rush back to America. So it was a couple of years until the, after the war that she was able to come back to America. And they had the hardships during the war. Life was not easy in Japan. At first, of course, Japan was winning the war. And uh, but then Japan was losing the war. And then there was kind of a shift, a couple of shifts. Well, one, as you mentioned, she was hungry. They did not have enough food. That is such a profound experience not to have food for weeks and months at a time. And uh, in fact, one of the uh, the food items, not necessarily the t- from the t- for the title of the book, but Persimmons, uh, already important in Japanese culture, that was one of the food items that they did grow in the rural context that they were there and dried the persimmons and ate them as one of the few foods that they did have. They ate bugs, collected grasshoppers. All the rice was collected by the government and returned to them with ra- rationed. So they they grew food, but they, they couldn't eat all their food. They, they uh, had what they uh, could get. And uh, as the oldest daughter, uh, she had to watch out for the family. And the mother, as I said, was, was sick with tuberculosis. So a lot fell on Fumiko to do laundry, to prepare food,
0: to keep the house clean. It was hard. Yeah, but you have a haiku about the situation with her father. I think it'd be good to hear that. Uh,
1: yeah, I do have a haiku. Father's cutting words. She hides in mother's kimono.
0: Father's cutting words. She hides in mother's kimono. She is essentially an outcast everywhere. While that's difficult to deal with, it often turns into a very good situation when you're an artist, (laughs)
1: doesn't it? (laughs) Well, she did turn to art at that time. Uh, She had teachers uh, in Japan who taught her uh, traditional Japanese painting and calligraphy. She enjoyed it and was a solicitor. She was also writing at that time. She wrote poetry. She had her diaries. She started keeping diaries at this time. Talk to us
0: about her journal work.
1: Yeah, well, she kept diaries her whole life. I truly admire people who do that, because it's so wonderful to be able to go back uh, 5, 10, 50 years and see what you thought. Her earliest journals are hand-bound or uh, sewn kind of uh, binding. Uh, they're not in very good repair now. They're also all in Japanese. So I had to rely on Fumiko to translate them. But she does have diaries from this time in Japan. She wrote poetry. And later on, when she did return to the United States, she she came back by herself with her younger brother to make her own way. So she kept diary entries, writing as if to her mother. And so she kept that communication. And then... Uh, her mother passed away in Japan so she never saw him again and one of the more poignant scenes that Fumiko described to me was leaving Japan leaving their small village and saying goodbye to her mother and her mother uh, put on her best kimono and sat and stood there and waved goodbye and so that was the last time she saw her mother Yeah, and so she made her way back to America. She'd kind of forgotten English in that interim. She had to kind of relearn English, and uh, she had some family in uh, the Tacoma area. Most of them had ended up in uh, one of the incarceration camps, but her family was divided because uh, a, a, a stepbrother of hers was in the Japanese army. So you've got one of her relatives in the Japanese army. You've got another side of her family in, interred in uh, the camps uh, in America. And Fumiko, a young, very young person in Japan, uh, not knowing which side to root for, or which what her culture is. However, she wasn't really a confused person exactly, or... I mean, who knows exactly what's going on, but you're born a certain way. And she was born with kind of a positive attitude. She has some native resilience to her. And I think that's seen her, uh,
0: supported her for her entire life. She talks about her first SUMI experience in the book. And I'm guessing this is in the 1950s. It might have been in the 60s. A way to work that was simple spontaneous and captured the essence i think that's how she stated it Um, that might be a good way to describe her art's ongoing ethos
1: yeah so she had studied as i said she she'd been exposed in japan to japanese culture uh, painting and calligraphy in school in school in the second grade third grade fourth grade fifth grade she came back to the united states she Continued to do well, she came back to the United States. She was very fortunate to make some good uh, connections. She became an, uh, I guess you'd call it, an au pair girl she lived in, and the people were very kind to her and insisted that she should continue her education. Paid for it. Paid for it. And, uh, well, you're a close reader of the book, aren't you?
0: I'm impressed. I was fascinated by her by her story. Yep. I was fascinated with the book. It's a gorgeous book and I could interview you for three hours about it. But I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna try and pack the best questions into an hour. Okay,
1: time. I'll try to answer the questions you've got. Well
0: no, but that's okay because wherever it goes, it goes. I mean Zen is spontaneity and that's what she had and yep. she comes from a culture that says you do your your, your life's work and your character shows through in the work that you make so you can be spontaneous and you can you can access realms that are greater than yourself and you yourself are only a vessel for it to come through i mean you look at bebop it's a, it seems to me a similar expression and i'm fascinated by it so when i heard about this book i got it and when i had the chance to opportunity uh, the opportunity to interview you i jumped on it and uh, she was fortunate to have that family I forget their name. No, that, yeah, the, Hallens. Hallens, right? Right. Yeah, that was very fortunate.
1: And so she went to university and uh, studied chemistry. I think she wanted to be look for a secure livelihood. She studied chemistry and became essentially a research chemist. Wrote a couple of papers, but in this time uh, she always continued with some art, and uh, in a Western style. And she actually had continued to study Western art. Uh, at university, University of Puget Sound. At that time, it wasn't the university yet. And uh, she married. She married a Japanese-American gentleman who'd been uh, on the American side in the war. She continued in that way. But then one day, as you you mentioned, she was uh, painting mushrooms, Matsutake mushrooms, in a traditional watercolor vein, and she found it lacking in something. And so she just tried her hand at uh, more of a ink-painting style, uh, more of a Japanese classical ink-painting style, and she realized that with just a couple of strokes, you could capture something of the uh, inner vitality of nature. And she was amazed. And uh, she thought, wow, this is the direction I want to go. But there wasn't much in the way of teachers available here in the northwest so she was a little stymied and then one day she's sitting there watching going, tv going
0: through the tv guide <laughs> that's right tv guide that's going right.
1: through the tv guide and she sees that a gentleman uh from san francisco at the the japanese cultural organization they was offering sumi on public television i think it was before pbs actually like, yeah, i don't know what it was at that time So she just got so excited and said, Eureka, and immediately started tuning in to this half-hour class at uh, 5 o'clock. And she prepared the family meal, put it on the table, and then she sat down in front of the flickering black-and-white television Mm -hmm. with her brushes and and learned some of the more details of of sumi ink painting in the Japanese manner.
0: Tell us about what sumi is. For anyone who don't know what it is, how would you describe it? Well, sumi is
1: the Japanese word for ink, but it's also really a shorthand for sume, which is Japanese ink painting. And of course, it's an ancient tradition, and there's many kinds of Japanese ink painting and Asian ink painting. It's typically done with a brush, uh, much like calligraphy is traditionally done with a brush. And to put a kind of a simple gloss on it, you have two main directions. One is a kind of spontaneous, boneless style, where the strokes of the brush themselves define the structure and form of what appears on the paper. And then there's a more structured and formal kind of ink painting, where you outline and draw the subject matter, so maybe it's some cranes and some foliage. And then after you've drawn the outlines, you use the brush to shade it and fill it in. So it's a more controlled form. So those are kind of the two. two but within that, of course, there's centuries of, of tradition of art making. Right. But within the brush, that's, uh, that's kind of it.
0: There are a couple of passages in the book about haiga, a combination of painting or drawing, and poetry, pages 59 and 126. Talk to us about the Haiga tradition and what she brought to it.
1: Well, as you say, it's a combination of image and text. And the uh, really important thing to think about with Haiga is that they're not an illustration. One doesn't illustrate the other. So maybe you have a poem, but, and the poem is about, uh, oh, I don't know, a crane standing still in the water waiting for a poor frog to pass by. But you wouldn't necessarily paint the crane or the frog or anything like that. You, you want to capture something or portray something that's tangential to the poem, that, that advances it in some way, and back and forth. Similarly, it might start with an image. And, and you write a poem or a couple of words, and again, you wouldn't take the image and, and just illustrate the, uh, or, or exemplify the image. You try and find some sort of tangential thing. So uh, in, this, in a similar way, it's similar to haiku in a certain sense because typically, traditionally, haiku has two components, and those two components, uh, there's a space between them and kind of the meaning of the poem or the friction of the poem or the delight of the poem is in the uh the gap the gap the explosion or the relationship or the the kissing whatever it is between the, the components so it's something similar
0: for the for the haiga experience you don't want to hit people over the head with it or as emily dickinson said tell it's slant tell it slant nicely put yeah. I'm fascinated by Haiga. As I was reading it um, and, and saw it come up again later in the book, I see that she was inspired, in part, by a talk given by Sam Hamill in 2012 to help form a group called Haiga Adventure. Now, of course, Sam, you know, is one of my poetry heroes and incredible teacher for me. Translated by basho, it might be the standard, you know, the, the English translation of Narrow Road to the Interior, not Narrow Road to the North, as some would uh, would translate it. I'm wondering, when she sees Sam, this is 10 years ago, and is inspired to create Haiga Adventure, do you know much about that story? Was it helpful to have non-Japanese people like Sam recognized in the community for founding Copper Canyon Press and doing translations and, and, uh, and, and being one of the key poets in the Northwest? Was it Validating in some respects to see someone like that going to her culture to find inspiration and um, spiritual sustenance? Well, it's a great question, but uh, that was a couple years,
1: a year or two before my time. And I missed that talk that he gave, but I did hear about the talk. And it certainly was very inspiring to many people. It did kind of push the... Puget Sound sumi artists in a direction to think about haiku more and and think about creating the haiga form, exploring that more, turning more toward words. It's interesting. I mean, the Northwest was very Japan-oriented after the 40s, let's say, after the war. Uh, We have this large Japanese-American community here. And here in the Northwest, we have quite a few Japanese gardens, really. I mean, there's one in Portland. There's a couple, quite a few actually in Seattle, as well as private gardens. Uh, the Seattle Art Museum was the, the original collection. There was born out of uh, Dr. Fuller and his Netsky collections, and then they had a couple of really good curators after the and after World War II. They, they the spoils of war. They bought a lot of Japanese art back to the United States. So the Seattle Art Museum here, the Asian Art Museum, has a very strong Japanese art collection. And so in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, large Japanese influence here and uh, architecture, of course, too. The Northwest tradition is strongly influenced by Japanese architecture. But the last few years, that Japanese influence is less strong. An interesting thing in Puget Sound, we're getting a little afield, but the Puget Sound Sumi Art Association, Uh, Chinese culture is part of that now, and uh, Korean, and so there are other uh, Asian cultures that have come to be influential in the Northwest, and the Japanese influence has become a little less pronounced.
0: I hear the art critic in you surging (laughs) forth, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful to have that uh, background that you bring um, for this interview. Haiku on page seventy-seven. The hum relates to an experience of creating art in Japan under the watchful eye of a Zen priest. This is in Japan, so she's a little nervous. Uh, the mistake is related on page sixty-seven. <laughs> you, th- you already know what I'm talking about. It was a, well. I'll let you read the haiku or talk about it. Well, okay. Um, the hum of the
1: temple bell. The color of ripe grapes. The Hum of the Temple Bell, The Color of Ripe Grapes. So the background is
0: helpful on that haiku.
1: Well, for one thing, of course, her, her son had committed suicide. We mentioned that a little earlier. So she... Uh, that kind of set her back on her heels here. And we're, now we've advanced. I think she's in her 40s or 50s. 50s, I uh, think. And, uh, yeah, that really rocked her back and she turned toward meditation and some other kind of reflective practices and a few years of that and she pursuing that and uh, went to Japan. Uh, She was communicating with uh, this Zen monk over there interested in deepening her understandings and uh, she visited him. They had a wonderful rapport and she had practiced and been practicing painting uh, grapes and, uh, and some other uh, uh, traditional themes and uh, so yes she was to her surprise <laughs> and when she got there she was like a celebrity and the television cameras were waiting completely unexpected the whole town had kind of gathered uh, there at the temple they were all waiting for her so she was invited to paint which she did. She got down on her knees, set up her paints, painted, and she painted the the grapes. And then uh, in the excitement of the moment uh, she didn't quite get the colors right and they were much pinker than purple uh, for the grapes. But of course in ink painting you don't get to erase. What you do is what you do. And there it was. And I'm sure that She flushed and and knew she'd made a quote-unquote mistake. But then in talking with the Zen priest and what he had to say, there are no mistakes. There's only the actions in the moment. And really that was a very liberating uh, concept for her. Not that I'm sure it wasn't unfamiliar to her, but you learn the lessons over and over in life. And this uh, lesson from the Zen priest just reinforced where she was in her artistic thinking and really affirmed her for the second half of her life into what art direction to go.
0: The grapes were just not ripe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Isn't that what the teacher said? The grapes are just not ripe. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. That's right. He said, he said, it's perfect. The
0: grapes are, 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 are uh, ripening on the, right. on the vine. There you go. That's the way you want them. Um, she was inspired by abstraction. They had a teacher at UPS, Monty Morrison who is a passionate believer in abstraction. It was a great, they, they talk about it as a, in, in a very great way in the book or she does. And uh, she also mentioned specifically Helen Frankenthaler mm-hmm. uh, among other abstract expressionists. Oh, great. This is great that we have the art critic here because the, the women abstract expressionists were better than the men. They didn't get the credit. I mean, don't you think that's the truth? Well, they didn't get the credit. Uh, you, that part you, you buy. <laughs> well, actually the, Helen
1: Frankenthaler is an underrated painter, I think. She, although she's hardly unknown, and there's a wonderful Joan Mitchell at the Seattle Art Museum on display right now. That's uh, uh, up there in the the Lang Collection display, and yeah. And I think there's a, I believe there's a Helen Frankenthaler
0: show in in Manhattan right now that I'm kind of interested in seeing. There was there was a Denver Art Museum uh, women abstract expressionists a few years ago, and I wish that would have toured. That sounded amazing, and I saw the website for it, which was just remarkable. That's that's what led me to say something like uh-huh. the women were better than the men. But well, let's just put it this way: they were talented, and Fumiko was aware of what was going on she kept absolutely
1: in and her abstract work is very interesting and it's gl- I'm glad you pointed that out she's not really a traditional sumi or Japanese uh, sumi painter that's a component of her work but she had a more complicated life than that she had a more complicated art education than that and she had more complicated ambitions than that and, uh, in fact, she was just included at the, uh, at the Bainbridge Island uh, Art Museum in an abstraction show. They featured five different artists. And she was one of the artists featured there. And, yeah, she was very interested in abstraction. And the goals of abstraction do overlap with the goals of Sumi in the sense that Sumi is looking to get to the essence of things. And one aspect of abstraction Uh, is to look for the essence of things and and try to convey it outside the confines, you could say, of of a representational image. So it gives you a more phenomenological, if you want to use a big word, just the experience of the color, the shape, or the pure thing. And from the 1900s on, that was a really important uh, aspect of abstraction. You're reaching for some kind of transcendental essence, and to do that you have to leave behind the world of appearances and which is things if you will and and to kind of move beyond that so yeah that was a that was an important component of her of her thinking, and she did a lot of abstract works
0: she also was interested in serial form clear cut an example of I was going to say being inspired by the landscape, but I don't know if <laughs> inspiration or horror is the right word, and I feel the same way when I see clear cuts. I want to find out the guy who decided that was the thing to do, what the, what the story is behind that, because it's a horrific practice, and she obviously f- feels the same way and created a whole series. But not just clear cut, other aspects of seriality, other art series. Can you talk about her interest in serial form?
1: Well, I will. I'll talk about that. uh, But I just want to point out, and I think this is part of her inner resilience and her very balanced outlook on the world, and maybe you could even say positive. In the Clear Cut series, there's always hope. There's always a sense of the cycles of nature. And oftentimes, although it's a very abstract series, there's almost always small trees growing somewhere and there's often the sun or the moon, there's, there's circular elements. And so even though she was shocked by the experience of Clear Cut and shocked enough to do this series, she also had the mental wherewithal to have some equanimity about this uh, horrific event uh, or human activity. I think that's illustrative of the kind of balance and resilience that she approached life with. As far as serial, yeah, she did this series over a a couple of years and developed it. The early ones were more literal, uh, representational of a natural clear-cut, and later on they became more and more abstract, just fairly large pieces, not quite maybe five, four or five foot by three foot, big swooping Expanses of black and yellow and very abstract. And uh, I think many artists work in series. That's pretty typical, I think, for visual artists to work in series. You get an idea, you work it, you develop it, and it's a series. So uh, most of her work is in series in some way. Mm -hmm. So she worked, uh, she had series that had uh, portals in them. She did a lot of uh, butterflies in her early years um, yeah
0: i think i think she worked in series and i think many artists do work in series well i think of monet's Ron cathedral which is just an amazing series of what 32 paintings or something like that where he's painting the same thing over and over but the you know the the nature of the light is different it's a different time of day uh, all other things are going on and it's an example that you can't step in the same river twice. I mean, it's very clear, but it's also very inspiring, and there's something very zen about it to me.
1: I think it's so interesting that some really deep philosophical ideas that you can explore for a long time can be encapsulated in such simple aphorisms like uh, you can't step in the same river twice. There's a lot to unpack in uh, in that little few words.
0: The post-war Japanese-American art community in the Northwest was rich, you we were talking a little bit about it, but she had associations with people like George Sudakawa, who's whose current exhibit at the Bainbridge Island Museum of Art is brilliant, and i highly recommend it. Paul Horiuchi, another one, who told her, keep doing what you're doing, basically. How important were these associations for her work? Um, Did she talk much about those those two? Well, she sp- spoke mostly
1: about Paul Horiuchi, who, who she met. And as you say, he was very encouraging to her. Now, Paul Horiuchi was pretty abstract as a painter and collagist. And he did work in collage. Collage is an interesting form. You rip up papers and glue them down. I think maybe we've all done a little bit of it in the third grade. But in uh, Horiuchi's hands and also Fumiko's, it's pushed to be very expressive and a very interesting way to go about things. It creates its own kind of space, typically a kind of a shallow space. And um, yeah, Horiuchi was influential and in his um, example as an artist and his, uh, I think his dedication to uh, collage also was, was very inspiring for her.
0: House is right up the hill where he lived on Aerosmith, about a mile <laughs> oh, that okay. way. Did not know that. Yeah, I could take you by it. I'm wondering, as I'm looking for a certain painting in the book, do you think Japanese-American artists of 50 years ago are finally getting their due with uh, the Cascadia Art Museum, Kenjiro Nomura, and others like him? Uh, I suppose. You mentioned the abstract expressionists
1: early on, and there were actually quite a few... Asian abstract artists, but the tone of their work is different than the American abstract expressionists. So the American uh, uh, abstract expressionists, it was kind of heroic, uh, loud, Bombastic. If you were going to be critical, <laughs>
0: pissing on rocks, maybe <laughs> um, wasn't that what uh, Jackson Pollock, in part, was inspired by? There's a story about that.
1: That, that I I haven't heard that story. Yeah. I mean, Jackson Pollock, though. I mean, I've seen some of his shows, and they're they're amazing works. They have share the same kind of ontological power as, like life itself. I mean, they're so, they're they're really, they're amazingly powerful. I mean, the act of creation is embodied in them and it can blow you away, Um, his paintings. But the Japanese abstraction tended, or an Asian, tended to have more of a nature feel to it. And so they were different. But the Asian abstraction has been under-appreciated. And let's face it, they were no doubt I mean, it was always said about Franz Kline that he went to Chinatown and picked up a little Japanese character and then made it large on his canvases. Well, it is different when you make it 12 foot tall and you're using a paintbrush that's 4 foot wide to put it up there. So it has been underappreciated.
0: There's a painting I was looking for. I couldn't find it. I didn't make a note of it. A painting that has remained unfinished for a long time, Mm. which is essentially a place where she put many of her feelings about her son who committed suicide.
1: That's, yeah, that's true. Uh, whether that painting will ever be finished, I don't know. I mentioned, or we discussed that how she kept diaries, and she was keeping diaries through much of her life. Some periods when she was married, and she didn't keep diaries, but for most of her life, she's kept a diary. And, but she also kept this visual diary, And so she felt as if she was carrying on a conversation with her son. And she would add things to the paintings as she was developing. And now basically it's just awaiting a few words, like a haiga, but not quite a haiga, but some kind of poem that you would like to add to that painting. and That will be the final, the final stroke on that painting.
0: She's already planned her memorial. She talks about it being Part Zen, part Christian. Part... Well, you know, Fumiko is a very practical person. I guess so. <laughs> and maybe
1: someone who's been through a life as, as difficult as hers, where you just have to look at your life, assess where you are in life, and make the steps that you can. So I think maybe that's part of her practicality, it's part of her humility. She doesn't want to burden anybody, her children, with having to figure all this out. Uh, she wants to take care of things and make sure things are organized, uh, settled, and uh, done done well. So yes, she's consulted with her Zen priestess and has a plan for what will be at her service and what will be how she'll be uh, dealt with after she passes. What's her legacy? Uh, well. I think there's two components to that answer. One is the people who've met her are influenced by her greatly. So the example of she and her life in art, her life in creativity and imagination, her own personal resilience through the adversity that she's had, all that has greatly uh, affected all the people who have come in contact with her. Also, This isn't as pronounced in the book, because it's written in the first person. Fumiko is a fabulous teacher. And her family tradition is of teaching. Her brother was a teacher, her mother taught sewing, and her relatives in the past, grandparents and things, were all teachers. And she is a wonderful teacher, and so giving of people. And she can't stop teaching. And even when she moved into a little uh, retirement home, she st- immediately started teaching classes she'd already been teaching there. And so she's a fabulous legacy as an inspiring teacher who students don't forget. Students don't forget a teacher who brings out what they can bring out, or helps you to reach further than you thought you could reach. And she's one of those people. And uh, so there's a large legacy as a teacher and that's wound up in her legacy as a founder or co-founder of the puget sound sumi artists which is part of her
0: permanent legacy persimmon and frog my life and art Akibe key story of self-discovery is the book david berger is the co-author has been our guest today thanks for your time my pleasure Cascadian profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the northwest coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at cascadianprofits.org.